0: These are The Real Problems with Titanic.
1: We're going to America! On December 19th. You act as if you're going to
2: execution. The most incredible event. Dubai, I'll miss you!
1: That ever happened. We're playing. Find her. Will happen. Iceberg! Right
2: ahead! You! Ah, i have got you! I will let go! 20th Century Fox and Paramount Pictures present. I hope you enjoy your time together. James Cameron film Titanic Rated PG 13 starts Friday December 19th
0: This is a story of how the Titanic was resurrected only to sink again. There are going to be a couple of movies on this podcast that will have a wealth of knowledge. A lot of incidents took place on the production, lengthy production issues, whatever it may be. There are going to be some movies that I will discuss at length. But then there are going to be other movies that I'm going to discuss where maybe there was one isolated incident, but it was so severe that it demands repeating of discussion. Titanic, released in 1997, is definitely the former. This movie has an endless amount of issues going into the production of it. As a matter of fact, there's so many things that took place during the production of this film that it can probably have its own podcast in itself. I will cover as many things as I can about it, definitely the big broader issues that took place. So, Titanic began filming in July 1996, and it didn't complete filming until March 1997. Now, that is a pretty lengthy amount of time for a production. Now, this is just straight shooting. The film had already gone under production as far as the script, storyboards, production design, all that stuff had already gone underway. The film was written and directed by James Cameron. Now, James Cameron himself could have a whole podcast series just on the productions of his movies, and Titanic will not be the only movie that I will be covering on this podcast, as he has quite the the history of being who he is he's a very intense director he's a very persistent director i should say and he himself would prefer his cast and crew to meet his intensity so he doesn't seem so crazy Making a film about Titanic had always been a passion project for James Cameron, and he felt like he had enough clout to get it produced now that he had had two successful box office hits in his previous outings. Both of those films were Terminator 2, Judgment Day, and True Lies, coincidentally, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. Again, both of those were huge hits, so he felt like he can use that as a way to get 20th Century Fox to fund or at least co produce Titanic. He also had a production company called Lightstorm Entertainment, which he was going to be more than funding a lot of the production costs himself because he believed believed in this film so much. 20th Century Fox preferred him to be making science fiction or action movies, considering that's what his entire filmography consisted of. But Cameron not only wanted to make a dramatic film, he wanted to make one about Titanic. He got financing for the film, and not only did he get financing, but he did something that a lot of filmmakers don't usually get to do. He had two major movie studios put together their own money to help fund the budget of the film. So not only did 20th Century Fox co-produce the film, they shared co-producing credits with Paramount Pictures, which isn't something that a lot of filmmakers do. I think you've seen somebody like Spielberg do it. You know, big head honchos do that kind of stuff. Cameron got a $110 million budget for Titanic. Now, at the time, this is, again, 1996. Like That's a massive amount of money. It's one of the most, probably not the most expensive movie. I would say that the most expensive movie to produce at the time was Waterworld starring Kevin Costner, which would be an episode in itself. And that one was tracking at around $150 million. After all of the time that had spent on production for the next year, the cost ballooned up to $200 million dollars. If you look at the numbers here, he's gone way over budget with the production of the movie, so already, that's strike one. Production companies obviously hate when you go over budget on a movie, and not only are you going over budget on a movie, you are really going way over budget. This is almost $100 million. They're already hearing back from a lot of issues that I will discuss in this episode, and so it's already starting to look like a complete failure. The real-life imagery of the Titanic sinking is becoming the perfect metaphor for the production of the film. So things aren't going right, things aren't going on time. I also found a note that the actual Titanic costs about 1.5 million pounds or 7.5 million American dollars back in 1910. So that's roughly about 150 million dollars in 1997. So the movie costs more than the actual Titanic did. So I always thought that was kind of interesting. The movie decides to go underway and James Cameron, he's full force in this. It starts with his casting of Jack and Rose. You know, he wrote the script, so he had an idea of who he wanted to play Jack and Rose. And upon watching Romeo and Juliet, 1996's Romeo and Juliet, he sees two actors, that being Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes. And he thought to himself, you know what? I like their chemistry together. I like them together. Maybe I can convince them to come and do a movie again and star as my Jack and Rose. Because he's always appreciated the throwback notion of actors and actresses working together. And you see it today, even. You see actors and actresses performing together in multiple movies. It used to be a throwback to the golden age of cinema when you had, like, Doris Day and Rock Hudson starring in multiple movies together. It was kind of that that thing, and I guess more of a common day occurrence in that time period would be someone like Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan in a movie together. And so he was really hoping that Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes would accept his invitation to come read together and see what they would want to do. Well, Leonardo DiCaprio obviously took the meeting. He was on board with being Jack Dawson. It is definitely a role that changed his life forever. Now, there's always been some funny bits of trivia about Leonardo DiCaprio's career and some of the trajectories that it could have taken. I mean, this kid was going to be a star anyway. He had the look. He had the ability. He was just an all-around perfect actor. He read the script. He read it in front of Cameron. Cameron loved him, immediately casted him as Jack. There wasn't any other alternative that he had. Nobody else waiting in the wings. He went for Leonardo DiCaprio and he got him. Claire Danes, on the other hand, wasn't so adamant about joining onto this production. She reads for Cameron, doesn't feel the script, doesn't feel like this is the proper vehicle for her. And she also didn't really want to do another movie with Leonardo DiCaprio. Not that there's been any kind of incident that took place between the two of them. She just wanted to branch out and do something different with somebody else. She decided to refuse the role of Rose DeWitt Bucator, which, again, is pretty crazy when you think about it. And at the time, nobody knew that this movie was going to be as big as it was. It happened. She refused, and they moved on. Kate Winslet actually wasn't the second option for Rose. That title actually belongs to Gwyneth Paltrow, as she was sought after by Cameron because he liked her work in Seven. Seven had come out earlier that year in '96, and it was pretty much blowing her up to more of a credible status. So he approached her, they read, auditioned. Didn't really work out, as she was in pre-production for about five movies that were going to be coming out in the next two years for her. And it was pretty big for her career, so she couldn't really commit to the shooting schedule that Cameron had set up for her. And what's funny is that one of the movies that she ended up doing in this two-year run was Shakespeare in Love, the film that she won the Best Actress Academy Award for her, so I guess she's probably not feeling too many regrets for that, although she has gone on record to say that she did wish that she could have been a part of the Titanic production, so it was a missed opportunity for her, but I think she made out okay. We finally get to Kate Winslet. Now, Kate Winslet had auditioned, but not only did she audition, but she auditioned with none other than Matthew McConaughey. That's right. Matthew McConaughey was in consideration to play Jack Dawson. And now I know I said earlier that Leo was the only one, the only one that James Cameron wanted. Well, there were some scheduling issues with Leo as well. So just to be on the safe side, Cameron was auditioning a couple of other people. None of them were really notable, not like Matthew McConaughey. So whenever Kate Winslet did her audition read, she did did it with Matthew McConaughey. I mean, could you imagine Matthew McConaughey as Jack Dawson? I mean, yes, you got to take him back. He's a lot younger. He's, you know, this is around a time to kill Matthew McConaughey. That in itself is crazy. So Kate Winslet's reading with McConaughey. Not really feeling McConaughey, but Cameron is definitely loving everything that Kate Winslet is doing with her Rose Reed. They immediately go into production with her and Leonardo DiCaprio's his Jack and Rose. And what was funny is that I read that Kate Winslet, whenever she first met Jack, I'm sorry, when she first met Leo, she immediately flashed him like full-on chest shot flashing because she wanted to break the ice, no pun intended, between her and Leonardo DiCaprio because she was going to have to do the nude scene with him. It's funny to go and do a movie like this where you're meeting somebody for the first time and like, oh, I'm going to have to stand or sit naked in front of you while you draw me or somebody else draws me. So she decided to break the ice by doing that. And I always thought that was kind of funny. And their dynamic is so great, not only on set, but for forever. You can see videos of them and how they've responded to each other's victories, to each other's highs, and lows in their careers, and it's just a really great friendship that they developed. Much to the dismay of a lot of people, they never got together as a couple. I'm sure there may have been a romantic tryst here and there. This isn't the type of podcast to assume such dramatic fare, but I know we all wish that they ended up together, but they didn't. Another really odd and random casting choice that almost happened was The Unsinkable Molly Brown, played by Kathy Bates. Now, Kathy Bates is so good in this performance that it's hard to believe that anybody else would be in consideration for this. But actually, country-western music star Reba McIntyre was in the front line to play The Unsinkable Molly Brown. And I know a lot of people probably think that's a little odd, but, I mean, she had done some performances before. I didn't think that her role in Tremors really garnered her enough acclaim to star in such a pivotal role in this movie, but I thought she was fine in Tremors. But the fact that she was almost in Titanic just seems kind of funny to me. But Reba McIntyre almost got the role of the unseekable Molly Brown. And again, I'm glad that Kathy Bates ended up with that one. Production is full underway. 20th Century Fox actually acquired about 40 acres of waterfront south of the Plaza de Rosarito in Baja California, Mexico, because they built a 17 million gallon tank for Titanic, so that James Cameron could go in and do some more of the extensive shoots. Um, a lot of the interiors of the cruise itself were shot on a soundstage somewhere else, but this was strictly for the sinking scenes, right? So they built this multi-million dollar water, and you think, okay, great, you can. You can monitor all of the terrain. You can monitor the weather, the temperature. You can do all this and do it safely. Like, you don't have to go out and shoot in the middle of the ocean somewhere and deal with sub-zero freezing temperatures. Well, this is where some of the problems began. Because Cameron, as a purist as he is, he decided to, no, we're going to drop the temperature on this water. He wanted the temperature to be down anywhere from 20 to 30 degrees while they were filming in the in the water tank because he wanted his actors to feel at least enough. Enough to what it felt like to be freezing in these waters. He wanted a true natural performance from him and the thousands of extras that he had on set. So he goes in there, drops the water temperature. Or not only are they feeling it, but the cast and crew, many of them, got hypothermia. Because of these low temperatures. Did he turn them up? I don't know. That's up to him to decide. And that is for history to tell that tale. As far as we all know, many members of the cast and crew got hypothermia because of the low temperatures in the water tank. So I'm hoping that he did. But there's no confirmation that he did. All that they have anybody has ever spoken out about was the fact that the temperatures were so low. So that's one thing. Now the next thing. Now this one, I thought, doing some of the research, I thought this was really crazy. The cast and crew were also shooting on a Nova Scotia boat set. Now, these are for the scenes with Bill Paxton and Gloria Stewart, who plays Old Rose, right? So they're going in and they are looking for the remnants of the Titanic. So they're filming all the present day stuff on this boat, this giant vessel in Nova Scotia. So there's about 100 people, about 150 cast and crew working on this. Like, it's a massive production. So there's people all over doing all kinds of jobs. Now, this story is so crazy whenever I heard it. I'm so happy that I actually have an audio interview talking about this particular instance. So to preface this video that I'm going to play for you, the cast and crew were drugged With PCP, when somebody dropped this drug into the clam chowder that the catering team was working on for the entire cast and crew. People were getting completely messed up on this stuff. And what's so great about this is that Bill Paxton himself, he, I mean, I'm not going to even do it justice. I'm just going to play an interview that Bill Paxton did on Larry King Live where he's talking about this very particular incident. So here you go.
1: The spike clam chowder from the set of Titanic, and did they ever catch the person responsible? Yeah, that's kind of a crazy story. Uh, I remember I shot the first couple weeks of Titanic. What what Jim did, he had us, he had me and Gloria Stewart and Susie Amos. We were all up in um, Halifax, Nova Scotia, and we were shooting on the Keldish, which is the Russian research vessel that had the two mere subs that Jim had taken down to Titanic to shoot some footage that he used in the film. While we were shooting that, they were building the big set down in Rosarita Beach. Uh, one night, we'd, it was, we were shooting splits. We would go in around 5 o'clock, and so we would take our dinner at midnight, and then we'd work till dawn. And uh, I didn't care for the caterer much, so I was ordering my meals in, but I was having a, a good conversation with Jim Cameron on the set. And I said, Jim, are you going to eat off the truck tonight? He said, yeah. I said, well, I'll join you. So we ladled up the clam chowder, not knowing it was laced with PCP. And uh, I don't know who did it or why, but I remember going back to my trailer after lunch and Jim went up to his office, and uh, I heard a commotion, and I opened up my door, and I saw a couple of ambulances pulling in, and and then an AD ran up and said, uh, are you feeling okay? And I was like, well, I, I think I'm, you know, I'm shooting all night. I'm feeling about as good as you can feel. And he said, well, did you eat the clam chowder? And I thought, well, yeah, I had a couple of bowls. And, uh, and about that time, I started feeling it. Now I'm starting to witness some bizarre behavior with the crew and stuff, <laughs> and, and they take us very close by. We were on the Dartmouth side of Halifax Bay, and uh, so all of a sudden, here's 150 crew members stumbling into the emergency room of a very small hospital at 1 o'clock in the morning. You see some people are freaking out. Some people are Congo dancing. Some, some people well, are, are euphoric. I, I knew I was pretty stoned on something pretty bad. And I thought, we, me and Jim thought that it was, there was a neurotoxin in the clams. We didn't know what it was. We thought maybe the clams had been left out in the sun or whatever. But I figured while they examined all these other hundred people, I said to Jim, I said, Jim, I'm, I'm not going to hang out here. This is bedlam. I'm going to go. I'm going to wander because it was only a few blocks from the set. I'm going to wander back down and just drink a case of beer, which is what
0: <laughs> I did. And, uh, that seemed to that seemed to help me. So it doesn't really need to be said, but Bill Paxton is a national treasure and he is deeply missed. But as far as that PCP incident, I'm really glad that nobody was hurt because if they didn't find that guy, someone could have gotten away with murder. I mean, that's that's pretty serious stuff. So it's unfortunate that they didn't find who did it, but I'm pretty sure they could narrow down all the disgruntled employee. Well, maybe they couldn't have narrowed down all the disgruntled employees considering they were working for uh, James Cameron. The other thing that I found quite interesting was the fact that James Cameron didn't want any songs in the movie. He didn't want to feature any vocals. He just wanted composer James Horner to create a score that he felt captured the elements of the film, which he did because James Horner went on to win an Oscar for that. What I mean is he didn't want a song, so with that being said, he didn't want... Celine Dion's My Heart Will Go On. If you were around in 1997 and 98 when that song was out, it was played nonstop. You couldn't go anywhere without hearing My Heart Will Go On. It was everywhere. It was on TV. It was on the radio. People were just playing it because they loved it. What's crazy about that is the fact that it was the number one song for about 16 weeks. It was just absolutely insane again in hindsight to think that james cameron didn't want that because without that song it's almost missing a major piece of its identity so what james horner did to convince james cameron to have this song included into the movie was he took celine dion and another one of his sound mixers brought her to the studio they all wrote it they all produced it and they basically did it behind james cameron's back and he recorded celine dion singing this song and what he heard was the beautiful song that we all know and all remember. And generations know this song because it's so powerful and it's so much of a part of the titanic, titanic identity that it's, it's impossible not to know it. James Horner goes up, has a meeting with Cameron and says, look, I want to play you something and I don't know if you're going to be mad about this or not, but I want you to really listen to this. So he plays My Heart Will Go On to James Cameron. James Cameron listens to the song and of course he loves it. Now, there is a weird note where Cameron says he didn't know who Celine Dion was, which is, it seemed kind of far-fetched to believe that, because even before this song, Celine Dion had been a pretty household name for almost 10 years, so I mean, she's done other songs that were really popular, she's even done soundtracks before, so it's like, to assume that you didn't know who Celine Dion was was a little bit silly, but he listened to the song, and he absolutely loved it. And he is not one to apologize, but James Horner likes to throw into the faces of a lot of people. He says, I got James Cameron to admit he was wrong about something. And that's kind of one of his feather in his caps. Probably, he probably appreciated that more than the Oscar. But he acknowledged that this song needed to be in the movie. Not only did it need to be in the movie, he, he had it in the marketing. He had it in the, t- in the trailers. He had it to close the movie out. It's sampled throughout the whole film. I mean, it's it's basically James Horner's score for the movie. But it's also, in addition, the, the songs. So that's why it sounds so similar. Okay, I want to go back to Kate Winslet for a second because it seemed like she endured quite a bit of trauma while filming this movie. To start, her diet was pretty ridiculous because she wanted to fit in her corset she wanted to be ready for the nude scene that she was shooting so her diet was pretty strict and the studio made her go on a diet as well because they wanted their leading lady to be that I guess and and there was a scene in particular about the corset where her mother played by Frances Fisher is tying her in the scene James Cameron said you know what be as strict as you can on that really pull it really tug it as if you're having a difficult time with it and really put her in the corset because he really wanted her to convey the pain that it was to have to wear one of those so tightly. And so her reaction in that scene is actually her reacting to Francis Fisher pulling the corset together. That wasn't the worst physical injury she endured. Not only did she suffer from hypothermia like I had mentioned earlier in the episode, She chipped a bone in her elbow while she was filming one of the scenes where the passengers are running below the decks. She chipped her elbow on one of the railings there. And she was actually so scared to tell James Cameron that she was injured that she just didn't even say anything because she was so afraid that he was going to blow up at her. He was going to make it seem like it was her fault. Because, like I had mentioned earlier, Cameron is quite the tyrant on one of these sets. As a matter of fact, to kind of deviate over back to James Cameron and his tumultuous designs and desires to be such an onset tyrant, the casting crew actually gave him a nick because they would see him and he would blow up about something or he would get mad at the cast and the crew about something. And so whenever he would flip into this, Different type of persona. It was almost as if it was a split personality because he actually is pretty dedicated to his cast and crew. Like he's very passionate about conveying certain things to them. Like he even gave backstories to about a hundred extras that have no speaking lines that they're just standing around and for that authenticism he wanted to go in and tell them that they each had their own personal story backstory so that way they can have something to work with so he does have that persistence to help but there are also those times when he would fly off the handle he would get mad at the cast and crew and anytime that this took place the cast and crew gave him the nickname of midge which is jim backwards m-i-j so the cast and crew would say, oh, God, here comes Midge. Midge is on the set today, so be prepared for Midge. Do whatever it is you have to do to be ready. And so Midge became his nickname. But again, to speak on James Cameron's authenticism, I mean, he really did a lot of work on this movie. He really set the, the ground level as far as authenticism. And yes, there are a lot of his, historical accuracies for this movie. People know that there's not really a Jack Dawson or a Rose or anything like that. And Gloria Stewart's character... This is all fake. Like, it's just something to bridge their way into telling the story of Titanic overall. But some of the little things that Cameron put in the script, for example, the Titanic, once it hits the iceberg collision... It's 37 seconds in the movie. That whole sequence when the iceberg hits is 37 seconds, which is exactly the right amount of time that it took for the real Titanic to hit the iceberg. It was a total of 37 seconds. And not only that, but once the iceberg struck, it's two hours and 40 minutes total before it completely sank and went down to the bottom of the ocean two hours and 40 minutes is the exact same amount of time that you are on the Titanic with these characters. And this is also before it sinks. So, for example, you know, you have the Bill Paxton future stuff. The movie's total running time is three hours and 14 minutes, right? So you take out two hours and 40 minutes, and what's left is the Bill Paxton future scenes. So from the second that you see the characters from Jack Dawson all the way to when the mo- the boat sinks is two hours and 40 minutes, which is the exact same amount of time that it took for the Titanic to sink. Okay, and so probably the final note that I have as far as production goes, and this is a big one. Now there was a 90% scale replica made of the Titanic. So that way camera could film the scenes where people and the stunt doubles were falling from the top and you know the 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 boat is actually boat is actually vertically in comparison to the water. For these shots, there's a 90% scale built. This sinks. Like, the scale actually built. The model actually sank because one of the barges that were holding it in place at the bottom snapped under the pressure of all of that equipment because you're basically building a Titanic. So, the sheer irony of the fake Titanic sinking is just, it can't be a coincidence. But, unfortunately, it sank. And they even had to bring in inspectors and engineers to come in and figure out what it is that happened. So that also delayed production for a couple of months because they had to reconstruct the entire scale replica of the Titanic. Okay, so I wanted to get into some post-production notes. Everything's wrapped, everything's been filming. They concluded filming on March 1997. They have a set release date in July. Well, what ends up happening is that the sound mixing and the editing and all of the stuff, they have gone through so many reels of footage. And they don't even know where to start. And they're definitely not going to be making the summer deadline. So then it got pushed again to December. They also told Cameron to do some test runs, test audiences, and stuff like that. He did some initial test runs. And for most, more or less, the audience reaction was pretty good. But something that has been floating around for a little while now is this deleted scene, which you can actually watch on YouTube. And they actually put it in the special features of the Blu-ray and DVD. Where Rose not only dies, she has the heart of the ocean, right? And so there's this weird scene where we see her dropping it into the water. But in this deleted scene, Bill Paxton finds her. And tries to coerce her into not dropping the heart of the ocean. It's really bizarre how he acts where he just completely resigns from this whole endeavor of getting the heart of the ocean diamond. That he's just completely okay with her dropping it in there. It just, it felt really weird. The whole scene is shot odd. And it felt like none of those actors believed what they were doing with this scene. So, James Cameron took that ending and said, you know what, we're not going to do that. We're just going to have Rose go out there, drop it in the ocean. And once he did that, that becomes your ending. And once he started doing the test audiences on that ending, it was received so much more better. So, again, the budget for the movie was so big, $200 million, and at this time, it has broken the record for the most expensive movie of all time. Fox executives were freaking out and they were suggesting an hour of specific cuts from the movie because it was already over three hours long and they needed people to go see this movie to make up that budget number. And you can't go see a movie whenever you have less screenings at the theater because you can't wedge in another hour for a three hour running movie. Cameron said, yeah, sure, I'll take a look at it. And not only did he not cut it, he made it even longer. He added 15 more minutes of the movie. So initially it becomes three hours and 14 minutes is the total running time of the movie. They didn't even know where to start. They didn't even know what to do. They said, look, we've got to either cancel this whole thing. We've got to take an insurance claim out on this movie. This this is going to be a disaster. Nobody's going to see this movie. It's Titanic. They know what's going to happen. The boat's going to sink. You can't sell a movie based on an ending that everybody knows the outcome for. And so Cameron stuck to his guns. He says, look, it's not about the ending. It's about the journey to the ending. People want to see what's going to happen. I believe in my leads. They're going to carry this movie. And the action sequences of this movie are pretty great. And so this is one of the first times that studios defied Cameron or didn't believe in James Cameron's vision, much similar to what happens 12 years later with Avatar. He goes in, keeps with his guns, and they release the movie. Now, they released it in, J- in Japan first, because they said Leonardo was a huge star because of Romeo and Juliet in Japan. So they released it internationally before it even made it to the American box office, and it did very well in Japan. After doing that, Cameron felt pretty confident about releasing the movie. Titanic opened on December 19, 1997, and it outgrossed the newest James Bond film at the time, Tomorrow Never Dies. Now James Bond, he's a household name, he's a franchise, this is Pierce Brosnan's second run at being 007, and Goldeneye, his previous film, was a huge box office success, so they were already nervous opening up against a James Bond movie. They went ahead and opened up against James Bond, and it took number one. Today, modern blockbusters make huge bucks in the opening weekend, and then they'll drop off more than 50% at some times. But the thing that made Titanic a success was that that opening weekend wasn't that big, but what happened is that people kept going. They kept going to watch the movie, and not only did they keep going, but it made more in its second weekend with like $35 million at the box office. It just kept doing that, and it kept doing that, and it stayed number one for an astonishing 17 weeks, well into March, 1998, huge success. And like I said, people were watching it left and right. People were having repeated viewings of the movie. I saw it four times in the theater. I'm not even ashamed to admit it. I love the movie. Again, not seeing Cameron's vision, he didn't really sell them on the idea that the first half of this movie is a love story, so you're going to bring in the hopeless m- romantics. And then the second half of this movie is nonstop action. It's a it's a thrill ride. It becomes this disaster flick of the old days where people were really interested to see what's going to happen. Again, you combine these elements together, and it makes for this absolutely riveting blockbuster. So like I said, 17 weeks, it was at number one. And not only was that at number one, It was nominated for a record-breaking 14 Academy Awards. At the time, nothing else had been nominated that many times, and it won 11 of them. Not only did it win 11 of them, it won the coveted Best Picture and Best Director for James Cameron. And not only that, but it set another record because more than 87 million people watched that particular telecast of the Oscars that year. And to this day, it's the most viewed Academy Awards television presentation of all time. Titanic was just gold for everyone involved. And it was just an endeavor that nobody anticipated was going to be great. Now, I want to conclude this episode with this interview that James Cameron did for the 25th anniversary Blu-ray re-release, where he speaks so eloquently about the film and he talks about the cultural impact that the film has and continues to have to this very day.
2: The funny thing is, is there's no formula, but there is a commonality between Titanic and avatar. And even now uh, the way of water. Which is that when people have a powerful emotional experience in a theater, um, they want to they want to share it. It's not so much that they want to go back themselves. I think that's a factor. They want to just see it again, take it all in, reproduce that feeling. But I think it's more like they want to become the gatekeeper of that experience for somebody else that they care about, you know, friends or you know, loved one, parent, child. You know, whatever it is. So you've got these relationships that are intergenerational, they're among friends, they're dates, all that sort of thing. But it it was about the sharing of the experience. I think that's what a lot of the peak, uh, sorry, I think that's what a, a lot of the repeat viewing was really about. You know, wanting to gift that experience to someone else.
0: Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of The Real Problems Podcast. These were The Real Problems with Titanic. And, of course, these were a lot of broad strokes. There's a lot more information, a lot more minute details that could be going into this. If I missed any particular historical event that you remembered from watching Titanic or hearing about it on set, please do write me at realproblemspodcast at gmail.com. I'll address all of your emails. I'll make any corrections necessary. You can go to Instagram and see real underscore problems underscore podcast. Now, again, that's real R-E-E-L. I'll be sure to answer any questions that you may have. And please do check out my other show, the Screen Addicts podcast that's streaming everywhere. I really wanted to end the episode with My Heart Will Go On by Silly Dion, but I don't want to get sued, so that's not going to happen. You know what? We've all heard the song. We all have it in our hearts and in our memories, much like Titanic. This is Cinema Steven, and that's a wrap.